For those under 20 in the room, raise your hand if you know what this is. No cheating. Okay, May knows and Anthony knows and Megan knows. Okay, so a few of you know. Good, good. So May, I'm going to put you on the spot. What is it? It's an old school projector. Wow. Everybody over 40 in the room is offended by that, right? That's not old school. That was breaking technology. Sure was. Um, could, I, could I get, uh, maybe Destiny, would you turn the front lights off over there for me so people can see the stuff a little bit better? You know, the switch is right over there. Yeah, that's an old school projector. Now, for those who are over 30 or over 40 in the room, you know, you knew exactly when I put this picture up here, exactly what that was, right? That's one of those projectors that, you know, you've sat through many hours of your biology teacher putting up slides and transparencies of the digestive system or the skeletal system. They thought they were so cool, you know, when they got one of these and they were like, you know, watch me do math problems on the overhead projector, right? And I know Melanie was probably sleeping. She didn't remember that part, but, you know, I'm just kidding. I'm messing with you, Melanie. But, no, this is an overhead projector. Now, how many of you can smell the heat burning off of the bulb on this thing? Yeah, you can, right? You can still smell that odor. How many of you can still hear the, the sound of the fan coming from this? Yeah, it's just humming away, right? And it just puts you into, like, this trance. Like, wow. Right? It's after lunch, and I just had too many tater tots. And, right? Chris, it resonated with you, Crystal. You're laughing really hard. Okay. Yeah, no, it resonates with me as well. And how many of you can, can hear the sound of the transparent plastic oh, yeah. flopping, right, as the teacher lays it on there, right? My mom was a teacher. She was a science teacher, and she probably used these tons of times. Now, I knew these mostly because I went to church in the 90s, the 80s and the 90s. And if you go to any evangelical denomination in the 80s and 90s, they're going to have one of these bad boys. Maybe even two, if you're lucky. One on either side of the church, right? Why would they have one of these? Well, you know how we go through the lyric slides up here and we flip through them, whatever, with the little clicker? Well, back then in the 80s and 90s, boys and girls, <laughs> you had, you entrusted usually a teenage boy to be up there at those projectors and to be flipping the transparencies every time you changed the chorus of the song he was expected to have them all laid out so he would quickly put it up there so you could see it up there but you know you would always see like his hand or like the hairs on his arm or you know <laughs> if he was like me he would do some kind of like little rabbit thing towards the end you know and the, you know it's just it was important that he did that it made the experience complete right but I remember, you know, they would put them up there backwards, so you'd be reading them backwards, and so all my friends would be singing the song backwards on, on purpose really loud just to, to get onto the person that was uh, that just goofed up on the transparency machine. There was a lot of power entrusted in the person who ran that transparency machine at church, wasn't it? Did you, how many of you got to do that? Anybody? I don't think I ever did. Oh, Mike did. Okay, he's the only trustworthy person here. <laughs> Definitely didn't trust Gabe Rutledge to run that transparency machine, but... I mean, we get up there after church sometimes and turn it on, and we do little like little things with it, or put our faces over it and talk, you know, with, like our the silhouette of our faces up there, and that was really fun. But yeah, that right away when I put that picture, you guys saw so much. You smelled things. You heard the sound of a fan. You heard transparency flopping. Right. You remember walking into a science classroom and the lights being dim, and there being the muscular system of a human body up there on one of those projectors. And that was very vivid in your mind, right? 
But the people who in this room uh, are under the age of 20, most of them have no idea what that thing does. So it's very interesting that this thing that's so, so uh, memorable in our society, in our culture, and in our schooling, or in our churching, or whatever, for many people in the room, they have no idea what that even is. Think about that. About a 16 Yeah, no, I don't know what that is. No, I was, I was trying to think of things to put up here. I was thinking maybe like an eight track or something like that. And, but yeah, what were some overhead projectors we could say of first century land of Judea? So in other words, when we look at a picture, so to speak, of a concept, reading the Book of Acts, we have no idea what that even means. There's a lot. That if I was a first century religious Jew reading the book of Acts, I would say, oh, I know exactly what that is. Oh, I know exactly what they're saying there. Oh, I know what's going on with this. We miss so much of that. And our job is to try to regain some of that context and some of that historical backdrop of the New Testament so that we can find those overhead projector kind of situations. Well, here's a few. I made a list. The term circumcision, God-fearers, the law of Moses. Moses <laughs> saved the concept of a yoke, conversion. All these words, these buzzwords, though they weren't spoken in English at the time, they were like overhead projector words that carried with them a ton of meaning and significance that if we don't know that backdrop, is completely lost on us. And as we get into Acts 15 today, we're going to be hearing a lot of these buzzwords. And unfortunately, I can't in, you know, 45 minutes to an hour really do a good job of opening up to you the meaning of many of these words, but I can at least scratch the surface just a little bit. But here's a quote from uh, an article by Tim Haig from Torah Resource. And this is talking about the law of Moses, which we're going to see today. And Moses, these are code words for more than just the first five books of your Bible. The law of Moses is going to grow to become this whole body of information and interpretation of the 613 commandments of the Torah. And so when we see the word law of Moses, or the phrase law of Moses, we have to remember that that is a big compendium of information and, and halacha, or translation or, or interpretation, and how to walk out those commandments. And, and by the time of the first century, the, the, the interpretation that was offered by the rabbis what we would call the oral Torah, became interwoven with the written Torah. And they were like one and the same. You can't have one without the other. Because you can't have a commandment, and then the, you can't have a lack of instructions on how to walk out the commandment. So the rabbis sought forth to, to create that interpretation. And they bound that up in a body of literature that they would call the oral Torah, which was later written down and, and is now in the form of what's called the Mishnah and the Gemara, but that's the law of Moses. And all of that, if you took that upon yourself, was called the yoke of the Torah. Okay? So all of those 613 commandments, and then all the fences and, and, and rabbinic additions to those commandments, or instructions just even on how to keep those commandments, that was called the yoke. Okay? The yoke. It's important we understand that. And then we're going to get into conversion here in just a minute. But... Tim Hague says the following, I like this quote, but when the rulings of men became so intertwined with the written Torah that for all practical purposes, the two were one, to neglect the traditions of the sages was viewed as neglect of the Torah itself. 
one of the sayings of the fathers, which is from the Mishnah, it warns that if interpretations of the Torah are contrary to the received halakha are accepted, this could render a person unfit for the olam haba. Remember we talked all about the olam haba last week, the age to come. The implication is this. To throw off the traditions was to cast away the yoke of the commandments and to mark oneself as a heretic. You have to know that that's going on in religious uh, Jews' minds at the time of the, the events that are about to transpire here in Acts chapter 15. So who do you think are one of the main uh, guardians of this law of Moses, the Torah, the yoke of the commandments? What sect of Judaism? The Pharisees, absolutely. The Perushim. The Perush means to be separate from. Perushim means those who are separated from. So they're like, they see themselves as the guardians not only of the Torah, but as the guardians of the interpretation of the Torah. So when the, the Torah says, you know, you shall not carry something from one dwelling to another on Shabbat, what does that mean? You, you are not to leave your place on Shabbat. What does that mean? Well, the Pharisees would set forth and they would create an interpretation. They would be the guardians of that interpretation. They would teach that interpretation to the everyday people because that's what brings collective national holiness and that is what brings full redemption and restoration. That's what brings the Olam Haba. You get the, the rationale there? So the Pharisees are like the guardians of that stuff. So remember, we talked about in Acts 14, we're hitting this watershed moment where it's like Paul is doing all these missionary journeys. He's hitting all these places, all these synagogues, and he's finding out this really interesting revelation that it seems like a majority of the people that are accepting the message of the gospel are actually non-Jews are actually Gentiles. How does that fit into God's plan of redemption? And, and then if Jews accept this message, do they have a place in the world to come in the Olam Haba? That was a very prominent question in the first century. And then we talked about last week, what do we need to assume about Gentiles? We need to assume that a Gentile in the first century, if they're not a God-fearer, is going to be through and through a pagan idolater. They're going to worship the pantheon of Roman gods. They're going to make sacrifices to Zeus. They're going to have a bust of Hermes outside their house, right? They're going to believe all this mythology. And what's interesting about the God of, of the Torah, the God of Israel that Paul is presenting to them, is that it's an exclusive God. That's what's so scandalous about the gospel, the message of the gospel, is that, hey, Romans, we know you're used to accepting all these different deities and all these different ways of life, but the God of Israel wants to be exclusive with you. You have to abandon all of that. So we could assume that about the Gentiles. But if a, if a God-fearing righteous Gentiles, if they do have a place in the world to come, what do they have to do to, make, to, 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 to basically secure that place? And that was another big question that we're going to see come up here that we talked a little bit about last week and we'll talk about again this week. And back in Acts chapter 10, I talked to you a little bit and someone asked me a question last Shabbat, um, kind of uh, after service. They said, what's kind of the, the deal? Why is there a separation between Jews and Gentiles in the first century? And where does that come from? Well, it's actually, it's actually biblically motivated, that separation, that racial seg uh, segregation. It's to prevent intentional or unintentional idol worship in the home. It's called Avodah Zarah, and this is kind of a review from Acts chapter 10. You guys, maybe as parents, you know that there's that neighborhood kid that you don't want your kids going to hang out with in their home. Right? There's the kid that you might, yeah, you know them well, you know the parents well, they could go and do sleepovers, they can watch what you trust, whatever movies they're going to put on for them. But then there's the kids where you're like, uh, no, I don't want you going and spending a night at their home. 
And that's good. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. That's good. That's using discernment. But why? Because you don't want their you don't want their psyche, you don't want them you don't want them to be damaged by whatever might go on in that home. It's a non-God-fearing home. And you want to be cautious with that. They're 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 um defenseless children that have been entrusted to you. So you want to be careful with that. Well, that's the same kind of uh, concept. You don't want to take a religious Jew and send them into the home of a Gentile where you know that they have a household idol. You know that they've maybe slept with temple prostitutes in the whatever temple, God of Zeus or whatever. You know that they've done all these different things. You don't want to go into that home and, and thus potentially defile yourself and your ritual purity in that, in that, in that home. It's also to prevent intermarrying. You don't want, if you're surrounded by this pagan culture, you don't want your daughters or your sons marrying out to different pagan families because that won't end well with their faith. They will adopt that faith. They will assimilate into that faith. So you want to you want to say, hey, we need to marry inside our people here. It's also to prevent an observant Jew from eating food that was not kosher, like wine, meat sacrificed to idols, things that are treif, right? You know, if you go into the home of a Gentile, it's assumed in the first century that they're going to put something on the table that was maybe offered to the god of Adina or whatever, you know? And you're going to sit down and you're going to be expected to eat that. Well, that would be violating the Torah. So you just wouldn't put yourself in that position. Also, to prevent the Jewish worshiper from becoming ritually impure and unable to bring offerings into the temple. you got to remember, at the time that this is being written in Acts, the temple is standing. And your ability to go into the temple was contingent upon your ritual purity at the state of entering the temple. So you don't want to go into a home of a Gentile, making yourself impure, and then be in a, in a state of impurity as you're approaching the temple. That, that, that concept is going on as well. So you see these are all well-intentioned, but are they biblical? What if the home of that Gentile is a God-fearing home? See, there's a problem there. Like Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 that we talked about, exactly. These are all like fences. These are all like fences, yeah. These are some quotes from the Mishnah here talking about that, but I'm going to, for the sake of time, this manifests itself, manifests itself in the architecture of the temple itself. Around the uh, temple was a three-foot-high wall called a soreg, and a soreg basically prevented non-Jews from entering into the temple precepts itself. You had to pass your offering off to a Levite, and they would take it in to, uh, to the temple itself. Nowhere in the Torah does it say that you were to erect this wall or anything like this. This isn't a Torah-mandated wall. This is something that, again, may be well-intentioned, but unbiblical in its nature. Let's create this wall to prevent pagans and idolaters from coming in and defiling our temple, because this is the dwelling place of the Most High God. And this is what it says on it. Let no foreigner enter within the parapet and the partition which surrounds the temple precincts. Anyone caught violating will be held accountable for his ensuing death. So you see, can you sense the racial tension that's going on in the first century? But then what happens, like I said, when a Gentile accepts the message of the gospel and they abandon all that stuff? Does all that, does all that just crumble? Are we then like brothers and sisters with them? Do we trust them? Can they come into our synagogues and worship shoulder to shoulder with us? Can we sit down and eat meals with them? Can we say the prayers with them? Can they read from our Torah? You know, that's a big question that's, that's plaguing the first century sect of the way. So, Suzanne? Yeah. What do we do with all these Gentiles? Yeah, absolutely. How can they meet the standards so that we can have Yeah, and it kind of comes to a head with this question right here. Must a Gentile make a form, formal conversion 
into our faith to have a place in the world to come? If so, what does that conversion look like? And is it a biblical practice? Why is Judaism, we're going to talk about this, why is Judaism so closed and apprehensive towards these conversions? Well, in the first century, there was a practice of converting Gentiles. However, you know, like, if you go to uh, Billy Graham Crusade, of course, if you want to make a proclamation of your faith, if you want to be converted to Christianity, you know, there's all kinds of efforts that are made to convert people into the faith of Christianity. It's a very evangelistic faith, right? But that's not the case with Judaism. Judaism is almost more standoffish towards converts, and it's, it's become more uh, divided along racial lines than it is about the, the lesions of your heart. So if you want to make a conversion in the first century, you would have to find someone like a great teacher or learned individual we call a rabbi, and you have to go to them, approach them, and say, I'd like to be converted into your faith. Well, then there would be enter a, a time of instruction and teaching and examination. And typically, I've, I've heard things that say that the rabbi has to decline you three times before he'll actually start that conversion process. So you go through this examination process. It might last about a year long where you start to learn how to keep the Torah and the commandments and eat kosher and, and not do things that you did in your prior life and so on and so forth. And at the end of that examination period and learning period, you would undergo a brit milah, which is a cutting of the covenant which is circumcision. So if you're male, adult, you're, under, you're undergoing circumcision in the first century, even to the, this day. And then you undergo a mikvah, an immersion, and then you come up from that water as if you are born a Jew. Okay? So there's two great rabbis in the first century that had differing viewpoints on how to convert Gentiles. And this is going to be really important because this is going to educate us on how we approach Acts 15. Does anyone know the two great rabbis? Yeah. Hillel and Shammai, yeah, and they're all over in this document called the Mishnah. Let me read a little bit to you about the story here. It says, there was an incident involving one Gentile who came before Shammai, Rabbi Shammai, and he said to Shammai, convert me on the condition that you teach me the entire Torah while I stand on one foot. Shammai pushed him away with a builder's cubit in his hand. This was a common uh, this was a, a common measuring stick, and Shammai was a builder by trade. The same Gentile went before Rabbi Hillel. Rabbi Hillel converted him and said to him, That which is hateful to, uh, to you, do not do to another. And that is the entire Torah. Now go and learn. So you see the difference there between Sh Shammai and Hillel. Um, he says, you know, no, I won't convert you. No, no. But Hillel says, yeah, stand on one foot. Okay, don't do what is hateful to one another. Now, the rest of the Torah is just commentary interpretation. Now go and learn it. You see the difference there in the, in the thought process? Well, Hillel, as you might recall, is the, is the grandfather of Gamliel. And who was a student of Gamliel? Paul. So do you think Paul is going to learn that approach to conversion, that approach to bringing Gentiles into the faith, or do you think he's absorbed Shammai's? He's, absor he's absorbed the more lenient Hillel's view of conversion. And we're going to see that here in just a moment. So for those Gentiles who did not turn to the God of Israel, who, I'm sorry, for, who, who did turn to the God of Israel, what are some things we can ask about them? So we're about to jump into Acts 15. Before we do, Let's get some assumptions out of the room, okay? Number one, where did they go to learn their new morality 
under the authority of this God. Okay, so Brian is a Gentile who has accepted the message of the gospel of the kingdom in the first century. All right, he heard Paul speaking and he was compelled and he was moved and he accepted that message. Now, where is Brian going to go to learn more about this God? To the local synagogue. Wait, you tell me there wasn't a First United Methodist Church in town where he could go? That was like next year they found it, yeah. Right? He would go to the local synagogue, yeah. That, that was one of the linchpins or the arguments was we know that we can take these Gentiles in because as long as they are part of a synagogue, they are going to be learning mm -hmm. the laws of Moses every week yeah. when they go to that synagogue. Yeah, yeah don't get ahead of me. Oh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, okay, for Brian, what would Brian have? Uh, what would have been read to him and explained to him? So, where is he getting this morality? Where is he going to hear the morality? The in the synagogue. And what is being read to him in that synagogue? The Torah, the prophets, and the writings. You got me. So, as Brian is walking in the door, he's not going to be met with a greeting team with a card that says, oh, here, here's our visitor card. Oh, and here, here's a Gideon's New Testament. Or, do you have a Bible? We have extra Bibles on the shelf. Like, you know, it has all 66 books. He's not going to have that. No one in the room is going to have their own personal copy of the Bible in that synagogue. They're going to hear it read. And what will be read? The Torah, the prophets, and the writings. Would they, um, on, on what day would they have likely gone? What day would Brian attend the synagogue? On, on Shabbat. When, just like we've gathered here, when the Jewish people in the, in the town are gathering to, to publicly read uh, the Torah and to read the constitution of their nation, to read the edicts of their king, and to pray prayers to that king, Brian's going to show up. Clueless. <laughs> but he's showing up. Did Brian have a copy? Did he get handed a copy of the New Testament up until this point? No. Why not? Because they don't exist yet. We're only about 14 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah. There's definitely not a New Testament. Only a couple of hundred years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, now there might be some oral sayings that are floating around like, did you, the master did this, the master did that. You know, he healed this person, he healed that. But there's definitely not a, a part of our Bibles that are going to be called the New Testament at this point. So it's important we understand that. Okay, and get any preconceived notions out of our mind that he's going to like First United Methodist Church and he's going to get handed a Gideon's New Testament and a visitor's card. That's just not going to happen. He's going to a synagogue on Shabbat. He's going to hear the Torah, the prophets, and the writings read. Okay? And then Paul obviously just wrapped up his, his first missionary journey. He comes back to Antioch, and that's where we're going to pick up. So now we can get into Acts 15. I'm going to be reading this, and for the sake of time, we'll read it. We'll follow along with me as best I can. I'm going to add some comments here along the way before we wrap it up. Acts 15. Now, I'm going to do something weird and start in Acts 14, verse 27. Acts 14, 27. When they arrived, they gathered the ecclesia together and reported what God had done through them, and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, and they stayed there for some time with the disciples. In verse 1, but some men came down from Yehuda, from, from Judea. Now, they're traveling away from, from Jerusalem. Jerusalem's down here. They're traveling away, so they're going down, okay? They, they traveled down from Jerusalem to Antioch and began teaching the brothers. Here's what they began teaching them. You cannot be saved. Now, what I want you to hear there is you cannot have a place in the world to come unless you undergo Brit Milah in the manner prescribed 
by Moses. True or untrue? This brought them into no small measure of discord and dispute with Saul and Barnabas. So the congregation assigned Saul and Barnabas and some of, uh, some of themselves to go and put this question before the emissaries and the elders up in Jerusalem. So this is important here. What we're seeing is that the centrality of the, the leadership, uh, the, the leadership is being centered, I should say, in the city of Jerusalem. That Antioch is not the governing authority of this new movement, the way Jerusalem is. It's still centered there in Jerusalem. And the leadership of that movement is centered there and in, in, uh, headquartered there in Jerusalem as well. After being sent off by the congregation, they made their way, their way through Phoenicia and Shomron, recounting in detail how the Gentiles had turned to God. And this news brought great joy to all the, all the brothers. On arrival in Yerushalayim, in Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the ecclesia, including the emissaries and the elders. And they reported what God had done through them. But some of those who had come to trust were from the party of the Perishim, the Pharisees. And they stood up and they said, It is necessary to circumcise them and direct them or order them to observe the Torah of Moshe. Let's pause here for a second and say, um, I want you to go to Matthew 23, 15 real quick and look at that verse with me. Because Yeshua is going to say something about the Pharisees here. It's very important. Now, these are Pharisees, Matthew 23, 15. These are Pharisees who come to believe in Messiah. Matthew 23, 15. He says, Woe to you, hypocritical Torah teachers and Pharisees. You go about over land and sea to make a convert. And when you succeed, you make him twice as fit for Gehinom or hell as you are. So these men stood up. Now, I don't know if these are the hypocritical ones. I don't know. But it shows you how they, in their, in their theology, are pro-conversion of Gentiles. They stood up and said that it's an, we must direct them to be circumcised and observe the Torah of Moshe. Verse 6, the emissaries and the elders met uh, to look at, into this matter. After lengthy debate, Peter, Kepha, got up and said to them, Brothers, you yourselves know that a good while back, God chose me. Now let's pause here, because remember James died, but Peter didn't. Remember James got killed and executed. But Peter got freed from prison. He just walked. And remember we had that, that plaguing question, why James and not Peter? Remember that? Nod your head if you remember that. Well, here's our answer. This moment right here. God was sparing Peter's life so that he could stand before the Jerusalem council and make this edict, this very watershed moment. What is going about to divide the sect known as the way, Peter is offering a moment of clarity. And he's saying, God chose me from among you to be the one by whose mouth the Gentiles should hear the message of the good news and come to trust. When does that happen? Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius and his household. And God, who knows the heart, bore them witness by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. That is, he made no distinction between us and them, but cleansed their hearts by knowing how to pronounce the name of God correctly. By knowing exactly the day that Passover falls. No. 
By what? By faith. Verse 10. So why are you putting God to the test now? By placing a yoke. There's that word. You see it? By placing a yoke on the neck of the Talmudim, the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we have had the strength to bear. No, it is through the love and kindness of the Lord Yeshua that we trust and are delivered. And it is the same with them, the Gentiles. How is it that Israel was saved out of Egypt? Did they all have to, were they liberated out of Egypt because they all circumcised themselves? No. Were they liberated out of Egypt because they all started keeping just enough Torah commandments? No. How were they liberated from Egypt? By faith. What did they have to do to exemplify that faith? To show that faith? The blood of the lamb on their doorposts. They pledged their allegiance to the God of Israel. That spared them. Then they left. They became members of the, the nation and they had to step out in faith and walk. Now, did they receive the Torah shortly thereafter? Absolutely. Did they receive circumcision shortly thereafter? Absolutely. But what Peter is saying here is like, guys, you're putting the cart before the horse. You're getting things out of order. Now look at um, Matthew 23, verse 4. Is the Torah here the yoke that he's referring to? So in other words, when Peter's saying, why do you want to put a yoke on them that we couldn't even bear? Is he speaking about the Torah? Because Deuteronomy says the Torah is not too hard. You can bear it. So look at Matthew 23, verse 4. And we're going to get a little insight into what this yoke is. Matthew 23, 4. Yeshua says about the Pharisees, they tie heavy loads onto people's shoulders. Yokes, right? But won't lift a finger to help carry them. Now, let's look at Matthew 11, verse 29. Matthew 11. So the yoke that Peter is saying here is too heavy for them to bury or to carry is the yoke of the Pharisees. Matthew 11, verse 29. Yeshua says, let's back up to verse 28. Come to me, all you are struggling and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because i'm gentle and humble in heart and i will you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light there you have it peter is saying guys don't you remember what our master told us that his yoke is easy his burden is light let's look at verse uh verse 11 I'm sorry, verse 12. Then the whole assembly kept still until they listened to Barnabas and Saul tell what signs and miracles God had done through them among the Gentiles. James, or Yaakov, the brother, the half-brother of Yeshua, who apparently is now, if not the main leader of the way, he's, he's one of them. He broke the silence to reply. Brothers, he said, hear what I have to say. Simon Peter has told in detail what God did when he first began to show his concern for taking from among the Gentiles a people to bear his name. And the words of the prophet, Amos chapter 9, are in complete harmony with this. For it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the fallen tent of David. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. That is, all the Gentiles who have been called by my name, says the Lord. Who is doing these things 
So there, James is quoting Amos chapter 9. And all this has been known for the ages, he says. In other words, he's saying, get out of the way and let the Holy Spirit do what it wants to do. Verse 19, therefore, my opinion is this, that we should not put obstacles in the way of the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write them a letter telling them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from fornication, and from what is strangled, and from blood, or consuming blood. For from the earliest times, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, with his words being read in the synagogue every Shabbat. So let me pause here and ask. These four things they're telling the Gentiles to do. We've got three that are associated with food and what you eat, and one with sexual immorality. What is not on this list? And if it's not there, does that mean the Gentiles can do it? Let's take murder, stealing, coveting. Are those on this list? No. Does that make it permissible for these Gentiles to do that? No. Okay, so everyone in this room agrees with me that the expectation for Gentiles must be above and beyond these four things. Right? So what is it? Well, the key there is verse 21. Is that Moses has had... Now, is Moses in the synagogue? No, he's dead, right? Who is Moses? What is Moses? It's a code word for... The Torah. So the Mo, the, uh, the I'm sorry. The Torah has had in every city those who read it, just like Brian's going to the synagogue and hearing the Torah read since ancient times in every synagogue on the Sabbath. So there we have it. So what is James implying here? Let's tell the fourth. Let's tell the Gentiles to cut four things out immediately. Now these all four things are connected with idol worship in the Greco-Roman world. Right? There's, a, there's stories you can read about Roman um, gladiators. If they were to be killed in their sport, in their game, um, people would have these VIP seats, and they would, they would pour out into the, uh, into the arena in, in hopes of catching some of the gladiators' blood in the basin so that they could drink it. All right? Now, they believe that it had medicinal qualities, but they believe that they also maybe harnessed the strength of that gladiator in some small way. They believe that it cured epilepsy. In the Roman world. But there's way, way more stuff than that too. But these four things, what James is saying, is like you need to stop these four things immediately. Okay? And then the expectation is that you will be, so it's actually five things. You will be in, in the synagogue on Shabbat. And what will you be doing? Opening your ears and listening to the Torah read. Why? Because you, you are expected to have that gradual assimilation into the lifestyle and the culture and the religion of the God of Israel and his moral injunction. Verse 22, the emissaries and the elders together with the whole ecclesia decided to select men from among themselves to send to Antioch with Shaul and Barnaba. They sent Judah called Barsaba and Sila, both leading men among the brothers with the following letter. Okay, here's the letter from the emissaries and the elders, your brothers, to the brothers among the Gentiles throughout Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some people went out from among us without our authorization. And now we have to do damage control. They have upset you with their talk, unsettling your minds. 
So we have decided unanimously to select men and to send them to you with our dear friends, Barnaba and Shaul, who have dedicated their lives to upholding the name of our Lord, Yeshua, the Messiah. So we have sent Judah and si uh, Sila, and they will confirm in person what we are writing. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to lay any heavier burden on you than the following requirements. To abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, to abstain from blood, to abstain from things strangled, and from fornication. If you keep these yourselves, if you keep yourselves from these, you will be doing the right thing. So are they allowed to murder? Are they allowed to steal? Are they allowed to covet? No, absolutely not. So verse 30, the messengers were sent off and went to Antioch, where they gathered the group together and they delivered the letter. And after reading it, all the men in the room were delighted by its encouragement. No, they realized, yeah, we're, okay. Uh, verse 32, so Judah and Sila, who were also prophets, said much to the encouragement and strengthened the brothers. After they had spent some time there, they were sent off with a greeting of peace from the brothers to those who had sent them. And it says some manuscripts include verse 34, but it seemed good to Sila to stay there. Verse 35, but Saul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, where they had uh, where they and many others taught and proclaimed the good news of the message about the Lord. And after some time, Saul and Barnaba said, let's go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we proclaim the message about the Lord and see how they're doing. So in other words, let's go on another trip. Let's take a second journey to all these places. But Saul thought it would be unwise to take this man, uh, Mark, I'm sorry, I, I skipped a verse, verse 37. Now Barnaba wanted to take with him John or Mark. Remember, Mark was the one that backed out on the first journey. When things started getting a little bit hairy, Mark was like, peace, I'm out of here, I'm going back to Jerusalem. Well, Paul is like, uh, I, don't, I don't think it'd be wise to take this man with us, since he had gone off and left them in Pamphylia to do the work by themselves. Verse 39, there was such a sharp disagreement over this that they separated from each other, with Barnaba taking Mark and sailing off to Cyprus. However, Saul chose Silas and left. And after the brothers had com uh, uh, committed him to the love and kindness of the Lord, he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the congregations. All right, so let's go back and review some lessons that I extracted from Acts chapter 15. Number one, gradual assimilation into the faith of Israel, into the Torah lifestyle, is preferable over immediate adherence to the whole of Torah. Okay, people will come into our congregation and they'll say, oh, I want to learn how to do the feast. Oh, I want to learn how to eat kosher. I want to do this. Great, 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 great. Slow down. Take a deep breath. It's not a race. There's no rush. All right? You're going to hurt yourself. <laughs> you're going to choke on the steak in which you're eating. All right? Don't do that. Slow down. Well, how do I learn everything in five minutes? No, no, no. Don't, don't do that. Take about three years and sit in one of these chairs or go celebrate Sukkot with us or go you know, to, to pour a, a, a celebration, you know, go over to someone's home on Friday night and bring in Shabbat with them. Take about two or three years and just relax, learn. There's no rush, all right? After all, Moses is being read in every synagogue on the Sabbath since ancient times, all right? Number two, the five requirements, notice I put five, right? There's four and then there's the one, be in the synagogue on Shabbat. The five requirements placed on Gentile believers do not abrogate the Torah and its place in our lives. Our job is to figure out what in the Torah applies to us. Here in Dothan, Alabama in 2022, not a king, 
You know, like Anthony did the, the, the pie chart up there. That's our job, right? And then uh, thirdly, our salvation is secured by grace through faith and not through our obedience to the Torah. And anyone who tells you otherwise is not telling you the truth, all right? Romans 3, 28. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. 2 Timothy 1, 9. He has saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and by the grace he granted us in Messiah Yeshua before time began. Titus 3, 5. He saved us, not by the righteous deeds we have done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of new birth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Okay, you got, is that clear? You cannot earn your salvation. It doesn't matter what part of your body you remove. It doesn't matter how many Shabbats you keep perfectly. It doesn't matter how well you eat kosher. None of that will earn your salvation. But what will? Your faith and trust in Messiah Yeshua. All right? That is granted to you as a free gift. All right? But guess what? He's going to bring you to the mountain. And at the mountain, you will receive his edicts. Okay, now that I've ransomed you and I've bought you at a price, you're like a bondservant to me. You're like one of my children. Here's what I expect of you. Make sense? Yeah. You got to get those in order. And if you get them out of order, bad things happen. Bad, bad things happen. So, your homework this week is to read Acts 16. And then what do you notice about verse 10? What do you notice about verse 10? Let's close in prayer and then we'll do Q&A. Abba Father, I thank you for these diligent men who set forth to write down the events that transpired in the early, early history of our movement. May we honor and cherish and show gratitude, gratitude towards these works. May we apply the things that we learn today and not just heap up knowledge and information, but actually apply it and do it and open up the door of faith to other people in our spheres of influence. And may your, your kingdom come soon and in our days. B'Shem Yeshua, Amen. What questions or comments do you guys have? Yeah, read them. Yeah, um, a couple of years ago, I was walking through this passage with a good friend of mine. He's a believer. He goes to Calvary Chapel. And he was okay. And uh, we read through it. I don't like how you did, but not nearly as good. And we got to the letter portion. Mm -hmm. Okay, so he said it, it's important that we notice that the commandment to, to go to the synagogue on the Shabbat was not there in the letter. They left, they left it off the letter. So therefore, that abrogates the, the, um, the, uh, the, the, any, kind of, any kind of obligation for the Gentiles to go and be able to hear the, the uh, Torah read or the scriptures read. Is that what he's saying? That they, okay, that's not... Yeah, I guess I guess I would say well, there was a lot left off the letter, right? Yeah. There's a lot left off the letter. I mean, like I mentioned, like murder, coveting, stealing, um, you know, bearing false witness, profaning the name of God, and taking it in vain. Like, would this individual say that those are not incumbent upon Gentiles as well because they were left off the letter? 
So I guess that's how I'll respond. So and I'd say, go in peace, my friend. <laughs> After that, yeah, that's probably what I'd say. But yeah, Lisa. I've been asked by some friends and family members, so um, if you're now Jewish, don't mm. you have to follow the law? Mm. Okay, the way I explain it is when I was a kid and lived in my daddy's house, mm. he was my father and he had house rules. Mm -hmm. And I had to obey those house rules or I was penalized. Mm -hmm. If I did the things that he asked me to do, I was blessed. Mm -hmm. The kids that lived across the street from me were not subject to those rules. Yeah. They were not part of our family. Yeah. And so they had rules that they had to follow. Yeah. But if we were to adopt a child mm -hmm. that would come and be part of our family, yeah. they would be subject to those rules. Yeah. And so it's not in keeping those rules that made me my father's daughter. Yeah. It was keeping those rules that made him happy and our family work well. Lived in peace, yeah. And I, it's, it's a good analogy because I just recently went to an adoption party where um, yeah. there was a couple who had adopted, or they, I'm sorry, they were fostering a child for years, right? Yeah. Like I want to say like three or four years they fostered this this little boy. And he was like, he was like, you know, one of their children. But they didn't have any children at the time when they started fostering him. But they, they were fostering him. Then they had their own biological son. Um, and then finally, through all this rigmarole and finding a lawyer that would actually help them push their case through, they got they adopted the first son. So now they have an adopted son who actually preceded their biological son, and they've got a biological son living in the house together. Um, but it was a beautiful picture of what adoption looked like. There's no there's not a, there's not a different standard for those two boys in their home. Um, that there's the same standard. They have different stories, different backgrounds. They came from different parents, but. Um, they're, they're, and here's what the judge, the judge said to them, and they said this at this party. They said, the judge said that he is as if he were born to us. That's his legal status. And that's like the essence of the Gentiles coming to faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's like this adoption. Now, we don't lose that memory of that past. You know, we weren't born into this. But what greater testimony is there that we weren't born in this? And we, we chose this. You know, and it's as if we were, Paul would say in Ephesians 2, you have been brought near to the covenants and the promises through the shed blood of Messiah. So, yeah, it's a really good picture of that. Yeah, Jason. Eight days old, if, if you're a Jewish male, or you know, in the Torah. But um, yeah, I mean, the very next chapter we're going to read next week, Paul has Timothy circumcised. Um, Paul is not anti-circumcision, um, but I have a strict policy of telling men who ask me that question that, um, <laughs> and this isn't like a jab or anything like that, but you, you, uh, you don't worry. I promise you. I make you a promise. Um, 
and we all, the, all everyone in this room should make this promise uh, that we not you not worry about the condition of my privates and I won't worry about the condition of your privates and let's drive on with what we know to be absolute and factual and um, let's we will be known that, as his disciples by our love for one another um, and I, I can't go wrong in that um, because really I mean who's to know <laughs> you know and um, is it is it a good practice is it a healthy practice I mean medical medical doctors would say so um, but what it looks like for an adult it, it's just it depends on who you ask um, but that's something that here in Dothan Alabama in 2022 um, is Gabe Rutledge with the little the little context that I have access to I'm going to say you read and study and you pray about that situation and you do what you deem best for you and your household and then don't don't project that onto other people does that make sense and then we all respect each other in our convictions because um yeah i think that's um that's a safe it's a safe place to be does that make sense to answer your question yeah yeah Xavier. i think that's a great policy i do have a question about mm -hmm. ezekiel's temple vision when it says that no foreigner uncircumcised in heart or uncircumcised in flesh will yeah yeah, that's, that's, yes. <laughs> so he's asking, what about Ezekiel's, uh, give me, can you give me a reference on that? I think it's 44. Ezekiel 44? 40 verse 4? Chapter 44 of Ezekiel. No, no foreigner will enter this temple, whether uncircumcised in heart or in flesh, yeah. Um, yeah, you better believe that if there's a temple that's rebuilt and Yeshua is reigning in it as king or high priest or whatever, however that looks, and I'm probably going to go read the protocols of that temple. And I'm going to abide by the protocols of that temple, whatever they be. Um, because if he, is, if he is my king and he has returned, and it says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, we won't mistake his return. So I will know with certainty that's him. You better believe that as I approach his throne or his temple, uh, that I will first examine the protocols. So, does that answer your question? Yes. Okay. Michael. So, going off of what you said, one of, one of the things I do, especially with uh, any kind of prophets and genealogy that are in the future that we don't understand, is we'll know it when we get there. Yeah, we'll know when we get there. Yeah. Yeah. It's very true. Anybody else have a question, comment? 